were to humanize medicine, it had to really focus upon the human person and hmm. both the person as the patient as well as the healthcare professional. And so there, it's just not so much the autonomy of the person as it is the dignity of the person. And that's both mm. of the patient as well as the healthcare professional. So what you want mm. is a healthcare system that really respects, sure, autonomy is important, uh, beneficence is important, but the integrity, what that person is worth, is is really at at its ground. What what makes us who we are uh, as mm. persons? It's it's who we are. That that dignity defines us. Welcome to Chasing Leviathan. I'm your host, PJ Weary, and I'm here today with Dr. James Markham. Uh, Dr. Markham earned doctorates in philosophy from Boston College and in physiology from the University of Cincinnati Medical College. He also earned a Master's of Arts in Theological Studies from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. He was a postdoctoral fellow at Harvard Medical School and Massachusetts Institute of Technology and a faculty member at Harvard Medical School for almost two decades before arriving at Baylor University. He has received grants from several funding agencies, including the National Institutes of Health, the National Science Foundation, and the American Heart Association. He delivers invited lectures frequently at both national and international conferences, and his current research interests include the philosophy and history of science and medicine. Dr. Markham, so glad to have you today. Well, thank, thank you, you very much. It's a pleasure to be here, and I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Uh, and today, what we were talking about is uh, you've done a good amount of work on what is person-centered healthcare, and I'm really excited about this one because uh, I think it allows us to get more into depths of what may be the problems with healthcare in the United States without uh, getting too much into the weeds of uh, political rhetoric uh, and maybe offer some uh, just really vital solutions that we need. Uh, but before we get into all that, uh, talk to me, uh, Dr. Markham, how did you get interested in philosophy of science and philosophy of medicine? Well, um, when I was a postdoc at um, MIT and, and, and Harvard, um, I took a course from a philosopher of science by the name of Thomas Kuhn wrote a book called mm. The Structures of the Scientific Revolution. You've heard of the term paradigm shift. He's the mm -hmm. originator of that term. I really enjoyed his class. And so I started to take more philosophy courses. I'd never had a philosophy course before. When I was an undergraduate, I signed up for a philosophy course, went to the first lecture, and this person launches off into some proof of the existence of God. I mean, it was so far over my head. I got up out of class, <laughs> walked down to the registrar and said, look, I want to drop this course and take another science course. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> philosophy was my, really my thing. But I, as, as I sort of matured as, as, as a thinker, um, hmm. it became apparent that there were important issues, particularly conceptual issues that I think oftentimes we uh, we sort of ignore. And Kuhn sort of helped me with that. And I, I sort of got to know him 
uh, rather well. And he was said, if you really want to do this and be serious about it, you have to go get another doctorate. And I thought, no. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. But eventually, that's that's the way it turned out. Which to me is a real testament to your perseverance. <laughs> I, <laughs> that that's really really amazing. Uh, how did you get interested? And I forgot to mention this. You asked me how I became interested in this topic. Uh, I also did um, philo- uh, most of my philosophical work with Gadamer. Okay, and he has the Enigma of Health. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the person centered healthcare definitely resonated with me from a philosophical standpoint as well uh, as well as personal and of course uh, you know from political standpoint uh, it's a, a big issue right now um, well, especially I think with just COVID a national issue going right. on I mean, it's just <laughs> COVID has just completely changed the landscape yes yes uh, it'll be very interesting to see how things settle um, but how did you get interested in person-centered healthcare? well when I came um, to Baylor it was, you know, a, a philosophy job in, in the philosophy department. And uh, they had a course here uh, that was philosophy of medicine. And they had just started up mm. a medical humanities program. And so uh, no one in the philosophy department really wanted to, to teach that course. So <laughs> along with philosophy <laughs> of science, I was invited to, to teach that course. And I found I just... I just really enjoyed that course. I enjoyed the pre-med students mm. who were really interested in more than just sort of the technical or the scientific dimension of medicine, but also mm. the humanistic side. So I taught that course, and I still teach that that course today, and I became director of the medical humanities program for about a dozen years. And so that led me into writing one of my first texts on philosophy and medicine, which was an introductory text, which I called sub subtitled uh, humanizing medicine. There was a big Mm. push and there still is a big push to sort of, uh, sort of emphasize or to reintroduce that, that dimension, that, that humanistic dimension. And do you want, I, I can sort of go into the, a little of the history of, sure. of why this is the case. Uh, basically, it stems from a. Have you heard of the Flexner Report, uh, a 1910? No, sir. No. Uh, this was Abraham Flexner, um, who basically took a look at medical education, medical schools, both in Canada and the United States, and it was around 150 schools that he looked at. And wow. The the school, it was just, there were proprietary schools so that, you know, anyone could open a medical school. You and I could open a medical school if we just had paying students. I mean, that's that's all you really needed. Seems problematic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so you had, you know, there, there, there was really no standardization of, of, uh, of medical education uh, and therefore mm. practice. So you had allopathy, homeopathy. Hydropath, a whole different approaches. So, in nineteen the the late nineteen hundreds, nineteen oh eight or so, uh, the Carnegie Foundation wanted to take a look at medical education, and so um, Abraham Flexner was invited to um, to do that that study. And interestingly, his mm. brother was Simon Flexer. 
um, who was director of the Rockefeller Institute. And his brother, Simon, was actually a graduate of uh, Johns Hopkins. So the model that okay. was used to evaluate all these schools was, was Johns Hopkins, which actually had the audacity to require a couple years of college education before you could go to medical school. I mean, there are some places you didn't even have to have a high school education. I mean, that's, that's you know, how the, the sort of lack of rigor uh, that exists. Yes. There. Yeah. So what um, Flexner did is that he took a look at all these schools and he, he sort of said, you know, this is, this is, you know, what these schools sort of need to live up to. And he came up with what mm. was called the two plus two. And that is there'd be two years of uh, lectures in, in terms of the basic science and clinical science, and then two years of rotation. And the AMA jumped on board with this, and this pretty much shoved medicine towards the sciences. So mm. at one point, medicine was even thought to be the youngest science. Uh, Thompson wrote a book uh, entitled that. And what's interesting is you went from around 150 uh, medical schools, and you had a closure of almost 90 schools. So you had about 65 schools left over. Most of them were associated with uh, universities or mm. with hospitals that could actually, or, or medical schools could actually do research. And that was his big push, was research was going to sort of solve the problems uh, for medicine. And there was a big backlash uh, to that, mm. especially by the older clinicians, because they felt that their experience of dealing with the patient, like Osler, uh, William Osler, a, well, a well-known clinician, um, that science was necessary, but it was just one part of the equation for, for being a good clinician. And so hmm. the science is pretty much to take over um, in, yeah. in terms of medicine. So we're reduced down to know these diagnostic tests and from these diagnostic tests um you know, therapies are sort of uh then enlisted so that's that's been the problem it's and that was the problem up to about 1990 when the NIH uh, all of a sudden wasn't funding as much basic medical research or clinical medical research mm. that it had done in the past. And so mm -hmm. now it was up to um, clinicians and biomedical scientists to come up with their own funding. And a lot of that has come through, you know, developing diagnostic tests and, and therapies. And, and so there's this conflict of interest that obviously uh, emerges if, if you're having the people who have to fund their research in order to come up with effective therapy, you you have to be somewhat careful that you know they're not biasing their their results. Not doing it, uh, yeah, yeah. It's because they're they're in charge of the criteria for evaluating it. Correct? Am I, well, am I, I mean, following you? Eventually, you have to have uh, uh, FDA. Uh, approval, but as we've seen with the CDC and the FDA, there's there's plenty of documentaries out there, uh, you know, on Netflix and the like, which which raise some disconcerting 
um, thoughts about about regulation. But for the most part, yeah. it, it, it sort of functions, but it opens up that avenue. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, you, know, you mentioned something about how it almost seems like they were treating patients as the object of their study. Does that treating the patient as an object, um, if I'm overstepping uh, with the question, feel free to correct the question itself. But treating a patient as an object, did they feel the need to relieve the patient of responsibility? Um, yes. In, in some sense. Would you like an example? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Well, you want to provide an example? Well, I, I didn't know if the question was clear, so I can provide an example if, or if you have something, go ahead. Well, yes. I mean, patients have been objectified for, for the most part. They've, they've just sort of become uh, a physical body made up of physical components. And mm -hmm. the, one of the earlier commentators on the Flexman report was a Harvard physician uh, by the name of Francis Peabody. And he wrote a, mm. a paper called The Care of the Patient. And in that mm. paper, he talks about Mrs. Brown, who comes in with some just gastric distress. And at the time, all the attending physicians run all these diagnostic tests and find nothing absolutely wrong with her. And just simply say, Mrs. Brown, we've done the diagnostic tests. There's nothing really organic wrong with you. Uh, we'll give you a tonic and you can go home. And mm. Flexner, I mean, uh, um, Peabody says, look, you know, really what they've done here is they've objectified this patient and not, you know, empowered this patient uh, to really be part of the, of the diagnostic process. And so he says, you know, what a clinician really needs to do is to continue to ask questions because really the scientific mm. method is about asking questions, pursuing until you get the, uh, the, the solution to the problem. And so he <clears> said <throat> what was problematic here is that they only got basically a, a snapshot of the patient rather mm. than getting an expressionistic painting which he says, hmm. you take the patient, you embed the patient within that person's life. And from that, hmm. then you can make a diagnosis. And an excellent hmm. example of that is by Richard Weinberg, who wrote a paper called Communion. And in there, he has, he has a mid-20-year-old woman come in who has gastric distress. And she's been to every GI specialist in the town. And so she comes to Weinberg, and basically what he finds by engaging her and the connection between them is that she worked in a bakery. The family had a bakery and he liked Napoleons. <laughs> so he asked her about Napoleons in, in the city. And, and she's, you know, she said, these, these are the good places. But that made a connection on right. the first uh, consultation. And mm. He could not find anything the matter with her organically and said, you know, come back in a month. Well, she was back the next week because he had made a mm. connection. And in that next consultation, 
instead of talking about her problem, they just talked about baking. And so he said, well, I'll see you in another month. She was back the next week. And interesting, this time he noticed on this third consultation, dark rings under her eyes. Now, he hadn't noticed that before. He's a GI specialist. He's not trained to see dark rings under the eyes. And he says, have you not been sleeping? And she says, no, I've been having nightmares. And the nightmares were a result of her being sexually accosted when she was a teenager. Mm. And so she could not tell this to her family. She she came from an Italian family. Uh, Mm. And that would have just been too much for that for that family. And so by by just engaging with her as a person at a personal Mm. level, he was able (laughs) to really she she was healed. I mean, that that is an incredibly good example of getting what PBD would have called that impressionistic painting uh, of, of the patient. And I think for the most part, healthcare workers would like to do that. Um, mm. But pretty much healthcare has become economized. Yeah. And so yeah. not only was the scientification of, of medicine, but, you know, within the last couple of decades, um, it's it's been the economization, and so now you have companies that that are interested in in making money. Nothing wrong with making money, but it, it, it you have to fulfill your purpose too. It, it can become problematic. Uh, would another word for economized be uh, they start to focus? Maybe another way of saying that they start to focus on efficiency. Yes, and number of patients yes. in, how much time you have. Yes. Uh, I've I've yes. known uh, healthcare workers who have quit their job uh, simply because you know they're expected to see you know dozens of patients within a day, and that mm. that's I just can't see that benefiting anyone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, and I, I think this is coming from my own work in Gautamer, but just. Uh, observing real like observing life that if you focus too much on efficiency then uh and you've put that on human beings human beings are not efficient you know what like he actually um i believe it's peabody who who was it no it was richard weinberg dr weinberg Weinberg. uh i mean that's not efficient right like i mean like a lot of healthcare would be really frustrated that she kept coming back but that's how he solved the problem which actually saves money in the long term yes but sorry, go ahead. Yes, I mean he he did this, you know, generally on his own time. Yeah. And on his own dime for yeah. for the most part. And mm. you know, un, unless we can have a and what 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 was very interesting uh about that situation between Weinberg and and his patient was that at first he realized that he was a GI specialist and not uh, a psychiatrist. And so he tried to say to the patient, look, you know, I'm I'm not really <laughs> trained in this, uh, but yeah. I, I'm happy to refer you. And she said, no. She said, I trust mm. you. Yeah. And so, yeah. which is, I think oftentimes what we have to realize in healthcare that the patient really does have a lot of empowerment, not just of themselves, but of the other person, the healthcare uh, professional. 
Yeah. And I think I, I really appreciate your answer because I think it ended up answering my question when I asked about responsibility. What I was referring to is that concept of empowerment, right? That idea that uh, patients have to take control of their own uh, their own bodies. Uh, the example I was going to give, um, they just recently changed the high blood pressure mark for uh, blood pressure medicine. And so my mom had been on the boundary for years and she went to the doctor and they tried to give her blood pressure medicine. And she was like, I'm, she was like over by like five points or something. And she's like, I'm not, I, I know I've needed to exercise more and diet for like a decade. Like, I'm just going to do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Instead of dealing with all the side effects, paying for it, all those things. And it's one of those things where they were frustrated and, um, if that, if that makes sense, you know, they, they looked at her and like, no, no, you need to take this medicine. And she's like, but if I do this, it'll solve yeah. it. But they didn't want to leave it up to her. Right. Because they've seen too many people who don't take responsibility. Well, I mean, unfortunately, a lot of the pharmaceutical industry send reps in who are pushing mm. a particular drug. And for a lot of physicians, they sort of get a kickback. Yeah. And, I mean, I, that's, that is at best problematic. <laughs> at best. Yeah. No, it's, uh, yes, there are a lot of other words that could fit there. No, exactly. Um, and, uh, but I also think, do you, uh, and I don't fully understand the industry, but is there also a problem with um, legal ramifications? If you let someone walk out of the office and you just say exercise more and they don't, uh, I think there was a recent case where someone got, uh, doctor got sued when he just said you need to diet more and they just wanted the pill. Huh. Yeah, that's that's an interesting case. I'd, I'd, I'd have to take a look at at that case because the industry standard is pretty much hmm. a pill for every ill. And yes. so, yes. yes, you could there are probably lawyers who would be more than happy to take on. Uh, a case yeah. like that. The issue is that what's the evidence to support right. either therapy? I mean, if if the evidence recommends that by dieting, that that is just equally effective as as taking the pill, then you know the the standard sort of has to be reinvestigated. In a way, mm. but our our medical standards are pretty much set up that we're reactionary. Yeah. Once yes. we have the problem, then we sort of react, and generally it is, since it's allopathy, it's usually through some pharmaceutical uh, mm. that that's going to be recommended in order to to treat that disease. And of course, pharmace pharmaceutical the pharmaceutical in industry has a really big interest. In, in terms of promoting that. And certainly pills can be rather, or pharmaceutical drugs can be rather effective. But mm. again, lifestyle can also be very effective. Um, I mean, I, I personally can modulate my um, heart and, and heart rate. I, I, I do a lot of uh, exercising simply because at mm. one point they wanted to put a pacemaker in because I was having some problems. But, and that's been almost 30 years ago. Uh, and, wow. and so by exercising and, and diet, I've, I've been able to, you know, to stay pretty healthy, at least live another 30 years. 
So I, I, yeah. I think there are a lot of issues in our mm. healthcare system uh, that, that really need to be addressed all the way from uh, nutrition to sleeping to, uh, to just general sort of stress. Yeah, stress and living. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and I think that leads us uh, really well into kind of that main question. What is person-centered healthcare? I think the person-centered healthcare sort of comes out of um, there, there was a, a shift towards patient-centered care. Mm. Now, um, almost 50 years ago, and mm. certainly that was an important shift, but I think it left the healthcare providers uh, sort of in, in an awkward position. And a lot mm. of that came from the autonomy of the patient. Um, and so one had to respect that autonomy uh, and, and sort of empower the patient. And part of the problem there is that sometimes patients, you know, <laughs> they, they really don't know enough yeah. uh, in order to make a, a really well-informed uh, decision. So what, what happened is that um, in order to humanize medicine, it had to really focus upon the human person. And hmm. both the person as the patient, as well as the healthcare professional. And so there, it's just not so much the autonomy of the person as it is the dignity of the person. And that's both hmm. of the patient as well as the healthcare professional. So what you want hmm. is a healthcare system that really respects, sure, autonomy is important. Uh, beneficence is important, but the integrity, what that person is worth, is is really at at its ground. What what makes us who we are uh, as mm. persons? It's it's who we are. That that dignity defines us. Um, does that sort of help? Yeah, I love that. Dignity defines us. Is uh incredible line yes um thank you the uh so and i think this is kind of attached to it i've looked at some of your interviews um that you've talked about the virtuous physician um is that connected and how is that connected if it is yes um virtue ethics you know has its roots with Within the Greek, ancient Greek philosophy, uh, of course, with the uh, with the four virtues and the like. So, I think what's important about virtues is that mm. they really help us to implement our values. Mm. And so, when I teach uh, medical ethics, I actually begin with what's the the term is axiology, which is a study of of, of values. And what I try to help the students is for them to connect with what values do you have? And it's from what you value, then you'll equip yourself with the virtues that will allow you to 
realize those values or to use those values uh, in mm. in terms of your own behavior. Um, now, unfortunately, a, a major value in our society is, you know, <laughs> obviously money and mm. um, power, prestige. All of these are, and in some sense, they're they're important. But if they're the only values that really drive, or if they're overemphasized, um, it can result in harm. Uh, yeah. To to others. So how do you help someone develop their values? Uh, assess and develop their values. Well, that's that's the whole course. Is we sort of go over what our core values, who has written, there, there are a lot of people out there who have, 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 have written on this. So there are a lot of little diagnostic tests that, that I had them take to help them uh, mm. identify their values. And all these things are available online. I mean, you can go on and, and get them. And so. Uh, Do you mind naming a few? Um, no, I, I know I put you on the spot. Yeah, there. I, I don't have any right <laughs> off the top of my head. <laughs> okay, no, no worries. No worries. Yeah. Well, I've, I mean, everyone has access to Google. Yeah. If you're listening to this, then you obviously have access to Google. Right. So, yeah. So, is, yeah, I think what what you have to do is oftentimes you have to sort of find that diagnostic test, which you think is is best for you. That, mm. that you sort of track with. Um, yeah. And so I, I have a number of them out there that I have for the students to, uh, to engage, to determine their values. Uh, and then from that, we launch into the, to the various virtues. And so I go over the mm. four uh, cardinal virtues themselves, and then the three theological virtues as well. Mm. And so I use those as, as seven categories in which to take a look at, you know, dozens and dozens of virtues. And I just have them reflect on, you know, how these virtues can operate within their own personal life or, or in daily life, as well as within the uh, clinical uh, situation. So, yeah. and, and we, we do take a look then at, I mean, the advertisements from hospitals is just very interesting because they tell you what you value. You just go on, uh, mm. you know, you want to Google something, just go on to some of these uh, clinics and they'll tell you what they value. You know, they value you, health, uh, wholeness, things, things of this sort. So it's it's what what I try to have the students do is I sort of promote this idea of a moral compass mm. and that. By using these values and, and the virtues, they can align that moral compass, which will help them in terms of negotiating. And so, you know, we, we take a look at a lot of um, sort of issues that are going on from food ethics to eugenics. And, you know, I show these documentaries like What the Health. Um, and at the end, I, I really try to get them to use that compass uh, in order to take a look at a clinical ethical case case study. Uh, absolutely fantastic. Um, and you mentioned something there that's really interesting to me. I noticed you got your uh, master's in theological studies from Gordon Conwell. Yes. Are you right? familiar with what? it? 
Yes, yes. It's I a am. Presbyterian um, sort of. Oh, kind of, kind of. It's <laughs> yeah, a lot yeah, of yeah, Presbyterians yeah. taught there. Yeah, uh, I actually went to Trinity in Chicago, oh, but okay. I looked at Gordon Conwell. So that's that's my background. Yeah, David um, Wells used to so teach familiar. there. So at, okay. at Trinity before he came to Gordon Conwell. Oh, okay, gotcha. Um, what role does spirituality and or life purpose uh, play into person-centered healthcare? So you talked a little bit about in terms of physicians, right? You use the three cardinal ver- or three theological virtues, excuse me. Um, is there any uh, value that you see in regards to patients? Oh, sure. I mean, <laughs> you know, spirituality is, is a major factor uh, surrounding mm-hmm. death and illness. I mean, the movement in terms of Western uh, healthcare was from the shaman or the, or the, the priest, then to the uh, philosopher, with uh, mm. with Hippocrates, uh, mm-hmm. and then to the scientist um, within the 18th and 19th century. So medicine has its roots with within the temple, within the spiritual. And of course, you know, you you take Jesus, who was very active in 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 terms of of uh, healing miracles. Um, yeah. So yes. Um, I think spirituality is a a major element of of who we are mm. um, as as people because as persons we're relational. What really defines the who of us are the relations, the relationships that we have, uh, and that is that is governed by our our sort of moral nature. Um, you know, where we've often been compared to a rational animal. Well, yeah, okay. Um, I'm not going to deny that. And, you know, um, also a social being. But what makes all mm. that really possible is the fact that we're at root a moral being. We are mm. conscious of the morality of our behavior. Um, and it's in that sense that we're made in the image of God, that we are mm. are conscious of one another and can place ourselves um, compassionately, hopefully, as as healthcare providers yeah. Yeah. in the uh, in the patient's um, vulnerability, and and then benefit that patient uh, rather than than harming that patient. And that at root, medicine at root is sure science is important. Technology is important, mm. but the morality of that situation is absolutely, mm. absolutely critical. So you go back to the Weinberg. He did not yeah. abandon her. He actually yes. exhibited, I mean, of all the virtues, he was incredibly courageous. I mean, to step yeah. outside your professional training and listen to this yeah. person just talk. Um yeah. And and to realize that that provided the access for this patient basically to heal. I mean, she was healed yeah. at the end of this whole whole process, and that by his taking on that that patient with with such courage. I mean, he exhibited a a moral nature that 
you know, it just just has to be respected and I think immolated in 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 the healthcare system itself. Well, in our society at large, regardless of of, yeah. of the profession, I think we are just moral creatures. Hmm. Yes. And I think what you've talked about there is that whole connection between the virtuous physician, person-centered, person-centered healthcare. And even as you uh, started uh, that train of thought, I knew you were going to go back, uh, or if you weren't, I was going to bring it up uh, to Richard Weinberg, because that, it's that connection, Lord. right? That we are these moral beings in community. And that's, that's why we have to be virtuous. That's why uh, we have to be person-centered. Um, what uh, skill set would a person-centered physician need? I think there are there are two major uh, categories there. Uh, number okay. one is care. And that goes back to Peabody's work that in order to care for the patient, you have to care about the patient. That's his famous quote. Mm. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Two ideas of care there. One, you're motivated. He says you've got to love humanity. You really mm. have to be energized by engaging the patient. You've got to care about that patient before you can actually take care of that patient in terms of the technical. And the second, mm. I think, is the competence. And again, the competence is going to be, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That would be important. Yeah, you, you laugh yeah, about sorry, that. <laughs> yeah, You'd be right, surprised. Right, right, right. Yeah. That competent, not only in terms of the technical mm. procedures, uh, yeah. but also ethically. I mean, it's, yeah. it's you've, you've really have to have both type of competence in order mm. to provide uh, the quality healthcare that, that the patient is going to need. Now, those are just two broad categories uh, that I yeah. think then each uh, healthcare professional has to find what skill set they need in order to implement both care and competence so that they can provide that quality of care. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as we were talking uh, uh, before the the episode, um, one of the things that uh, you mentioned is that attitudes have changed quite a bit uh, over uh, in our culture about medicine. Uh, what are some of the major themes that you have seen? What are the major things that you have seen change over the last uh, the, over the course of your study? Yeah, it's become a business. Um, mm. I mean. For for the most part, you used you used to have uh, and hospitals run by religious organizations where they would just you know they would provide care for almost anyone. Uh, mm. And now those nonprofit I, I don't think there are any nonprofit really hospitals. I I I, I could be wrong about that, but the the push has been towards um, you know profit. And of course, mm. once you begin that, there's the problem then of maximizing profit for um, the stakeholders, and that's that's mm. the kind of language that you know you hear when when you read about healthcare policy um, and its implementation in the United States. Um, so, I think if if I've seen any major change, it's been um, 
that drive towards uh, uh, the business model. The other is that we've over-medicalized. Uh, there's mm. been a, a lot of medicalization of, you know, there's the shaking leg syndrome. Um, I don't know. I, I shake my leg quite a bit, but there's a, I mm. think there's a pill now uh, for the shaking leg syndrome. You know, I, I really don't need a pill for my shaking leg syndrome. It, I kind of, <laughs> it doesn't really, although it did bother one time a student that was sitting in front of me during an exam. He said, could you stop shaking your leg? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. I, I don't have, uh, I don't have a syndrome, but uh, I was definitely, I was an antsy kid. So I, I definitely got some looks during tests where I was thinking about something and I was bouncing the whole row of table, you know, the whole, <laughs> I, like, people just like turned and like looked at it me just, and I'm like, Oh, sorry. You're in the zone. You know, you're in the zone. Yeah, it's yeah. <laughs> oh, that's like, my apologies. So, oh, I, I, um, but it's not, does it need a pill? Right. right. Yeah. It's just, let's just let it go. Uh, you know, it's, mm. it's, it's, it's quite all right. Um, and you know, that, that is mean, sure. There's no perfect person when it, when it comes to health, but I mean, at, at what point do you intervene in, in terms of medical procedures and pharmacological drugs? I mean, can you just live with it, um, rather, yeah. rather than trying to intervene? in order to, you know, reach some what you consider to be uh, perfect health. Yeah. So, yeah. I'm, what, what others, I, it's an interesting you, question. Oh, what, sorry, go on. what do you see as, I mean, what, what have you seen change? I, I, uh, to be quite blunt, I'm 33 and I was blessed with pretty good health. <laughs> I mean, the biggest thing that I think I've seen has been more from the diet side of things. We talked about that beforehand, how I, um, you know, I, you, we were just taught that it was, you know, there was a pill for that. And, but I was also aware, and I think, uh, I thank my mother for this, that there, every time you take a pill, there, there are generally side sure. effects. Not always, but you, there's always that risk. And so I was always wary of just jumping right to that. Um, also having experiences with uh, different people who were close to me who took pills. They felt better. Uh, for me, it was I was struggling with depression. Um, and then after six months, they had to change uh their medicine because it wasn't working anymore and they were constantly in the cycle of trying different medicines and there are always side effects and i didn't want that if i could avoid mm. it and then to discover that most of what i was suffering from was uh diet mm. um really like i mean that blew my mind because that wasn't the way i was taught about medicine in i mean i don't have any kind of medical background other than you know just culturally right. right and uh the little that we're taught uh in high school so um but i'm 33 so i i have i don't have a, a breadth of experience i don't have a background in it uh so <laughs> that's that's about all i have right yeah so, so it's I th I think we're on a path where um mm. it's it's medicine is is especially in terms of precision medicine um it's it's going to be right. targeting what it considers to be 
either the genes or whatever proteins that, that, that might be responsible so that you can sort of fix, fix the problem. Whether or not that's, mm. that's going to happen is, is really unclear simply because yeah. it's, it's not known. You know, there seems to be this gap between the genotype and phenotype and mm. um, how we sort of fill that gap in, especially for patients. It's just not clear. We don't know enough uh, at this. So that's where medicine is is sort of pushing. And that's the very technical uh, end of medicine. So that at some point, you know, it, it may be that you really don't even interact at all with another person. It might just be mm. a machine, uh, especially mm. with advances uh, in deep learning and AI. Um, yeah. So it's... Know where where medicine is headed? I think is more in that direction. Uh, what are the advantages and disadvantages of that? I think the advantages, uh, if it can happen, and this is a much larger mm. question, because if you know that you're going to have uh, a certain disease, if you continue down a particular lifestyle, and if you mm. don't have the resources, say for changing your lifestyle. Then, then what? I mean, that's mm. that's that's kind of depressing, knowing that you don't have the the resources uh, in order to change your lifestyle. Say it's a dietary, where you know instead of eating the uh, the dollar meal, maybe you actually have yeah. to eat the salad, uh, and you can't afford yeah. the salad. Um, yeah. So, I think that the advantage is that we can pinpoint what might become problematic, predict it, and thereby prevent it. Mm. But are the resources going to be available to everyone? I mean, COVID has shown this, that, there, that the resources available to people, not only here, but globally, are not the same. Um, right. I mean, there's, there's just a, an unfairness to weigh uh, resources are distributed. So that's a major concern that I have is just the price of all this technology. Can, mm. can, can people really afford it? Um, or so are we going to have just not the very rich who can have all the benefits of this precision medicine, but the poor, <laughs> too bad. Um, you yeah. know, good luck with your dollar meal. Yeah. Uh, and it's funny that you brought that up. Um, I wasn't sure I was going to go here, but uh, I have discovered that eating better often is more expensive yes. <laughs> because it's actually subsidized for the like um, when you look at uh, beef is subsidized like the We pay big time taxes right. and big time. Uh, but it, it's it's subsidized in, in ways that are unhealthy, yeah. right? Like there is healthy beef, but it's actually not very economical, right? Well, um, yeah, all, all you have to do, have have you seen Earthlings, the documentary? No, sir. Yeah, no. It, it talks about the uh, how we sort of abuse animals. Uh, and there's mm. uh, there's also other documentaries out there that, that, will, that will show you just the horrendous conditions mm. that animal exist uh, in terms of factory farms. In fact, one of the big fears is that, you know, one of the antibiotic resistant bugs, bacteria is going to yeah. come out of, you know, the pig farms in, in the Carolinas. 
So, yeah, you know, that that raises a whole nother issue in terms of our our healthcare system itself. Yes. And I've, I've actually just um, uh, for me, I did watch Food Inc. OK. And so yeah, like very. So everything you're saying is very familiar. I haven't watched Earthlings. But uh, when you talk about like just seeing um, cows like up to their knees in their own manure right. and it it's there's no way that that can be good for for the cow or for us right, right. yeah and cook your meat anyway <laughs> yeah yeah very much so um and, and we're we're taught like if it's a factory that it, it's better than like a farm for instance and then when they do actual tests on the amount of like uh they were killing chickens in the open air and in a tent uh, at a farm and they did tests on that versus chickens in a Right in a factory, and the factory is way worse. Yeah, and for they were bacteria. going after him in the tent. <laughs> they were trying right. to prevent right. him and from. They, <laughs> yes, <laughs> and that was the crazy thing, and that and that was after they wash it with like bleach, right. which is uh, you know, uh, that's anyways. The, it, yes, the, like all of this. I mean, this is part yeah, of uh, why I wanted to have you on. Yeah, the, but, the the whole thing. I mean, with with the chickens, they they have the fecal soup. Uh, they they didn't oh. mention that in Food Inc. But when these chickens are washed, well, you know their feces are all over the place, and so they go through this yeah. water. It's just called the fecal soup, and that's washing them. <laughs> oh, it's yeah, it, yeah. Definitely don't watch it. Uh, you know, <laughs> I have had friends who like I watched it, and then I didn't care. I went and ate burgers anyways, and I was like, <laughs> like like immediately after, I was like, I, you know, props to your bravery. Yeah. That's. <laughs> Um, and it, you know it, it raises yes. a much larger issue of how sustainable yeah. this is on a global scale. Right. I mean, you know, we're yeah. burning we're burning down the rainforest at an incredible rate. Um, yeah. You know, at at what point is this not going to be sustainable? Um, that that could really be problematic to global health. Uh, just yes. you know, never mind our personal health, but but what about yeah. Um, the earth itself, you know, getting into this whole Gia like, hypothesis and, and the like. Yeah. 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 The, uh, you, I mean, uh, like the heat bubble that uh, sat, uh, was it over the Northwest United States, yep. which what like, um, I think it was uh, Alaska in the last couple months just had uh, it's a record high for winter. It was 20 degrees warmer then the previous record, wow. not the average, the previous record. And I was like, okay, I understand, like, you know, I'm in central Florida, so I meet people <laughs> who are, are skeptical about climate change. And Just I'm like, few. something's <laughs> happening, something. <laughs> but, um, but again, you know, we talk about the stress side of it. It's not fair um, to require people to learn so much about this so quickly, and especially when there's so much misinformation, I, I think there's a there's a lot that needs to be done in terms of uh, how we handle uh, the way information is spread. Right, how uh, that's regulated. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and it's not even for me. I, that's part of the reason why I wanted to do this podcast was so I could have people on, and whether they agree or disagree with you, at least they get to listen to you in more than a thirty second soundbite. Mm -hmm. Because I think that a lot of the problems are way more complex than can be represented in five minutes. Oh yes, 
honestly, like way way more than an hour, <laughs> right? <laughs> but at least like an hour's got to be better than five minutes. Um, <laughs> I, I, I digress. But the um, there was uh, one question I really um, kind of wanted to uh, as we start to wrap up here um, end with. And that was for you. And I think some of this is, you know, in your interview talked about Thomas Kuhn um, and uh, you talked about the exemplar and the disciplinary matrix. Uh, You know, that's part of where I got the idea for the skill set question. What does an ideal physician look like? Caring and competent. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, just I mean, genuinely cares. Mm. Just not about the patient, but also about himself or herself. I Mm. think we are taught in this society, we are sort of driven by this society. Um, Have you ever read the book Magic Mountain by Thomas Mann? Uh, No, Uh, no, it's on my shelf. I should. I know it's It's, supposed to be really good. It's an investment, but it's... (laughs) We we have to be careful not to play games to really Mm. live authentic lives, not to sort of live the banal life, but Mm. to live a life that's, that's genuinely caring, just not about others, but you know, really about ourselves. We have to have that genuine self love because if we don't have that, then it's going to be pretty hard to Mm. love someone else. If we really can't sort of care for ourselves and, the healthcare system. I mean, there's a thing called the hidden curriculum, where generally, uh, after you've graduated from med school, you you sort of are in the uh, uh, rotations, and you are just grilled. Uh, and if you want to see an example of that, uh, there's a movie called um, um, what is Wit by. Uh, mm. um, Margaret Etson. And in there, there's an example of that, that grilling that goes on uh, at, at the bedside when, when um, interns are being, being taught. And when I was at, at Boston, it was often, it, it was often when, when you're sort of in a room and you're, you're, you're having a meeting, it's often considered the smartest person in the room. You you want to be the smart. That's what you're pushed to be. You are to mm. perform as the smartest person uh, in that room. And I, you know, it's it's incredibly stressful uh, that sort of the way our education system is set up that we that we want the best and brightest rather than having an education system that produces the best and brightest that everyone can be. Uh, so we have this. Uh, sort of competitive system that eliminates people rather than uh, empowering and incorporating them. Uh, I mean, we we have a lot of we we need to do a lot in terms of our educational system in order to really equip people to uh, mm. to make this a better world uh, for ourselves, rather than you know not not equipping them so that they have to you know, engage in activities that, that really harm others um, mm. in, in one way or another. So, yeah, 
does that that folk go yeah no that's 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 great uh and that that focus on being the best and brightest instead of being the best that you can be stops you from engaging with others yes right well, like it uh, becomes when you a talk competition about, Right. And it's even with the patients, yes. right? Like you're not going to take advice from a patient if it's very important that you're the smartest person. In the especially room. when they come in something from like WebMD. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I will say I, I, I get annoyed with people looking up things in WebMD and I'm not even a doctor. So <laughs> it's like, it's cancer every time. <laughs> I have a headache. It's like, I think it's cancer. Oh, um, <laughs> uh, I, I love my wife and, and she's really good about it. <laughs> but there was one time she had, uh, she had my, uh, a migraine and uh, she looked it up on WebMD and I was like, don't, don't look it up on WebMD. <laughs> she was like, it's like, I, I think I might like, I might have cancer. And I'm like, why don't you just like take some Tylenol, drink some water and we'll see how long it yeah. lasts. And you know, it's gone like the next day, but I was like, <laughs> yeah, it's called wait and see. <laughs> yes. Yes. Oh man. Um, uh, last question for you. Do you feel that the field of medicine needs a paradigm shift in that kind of, in kind of coon sense? Or do you feel like this is something that would stick within the current paradigm when you talk about person-centered healthcare? <sighs> yeah, is is it a Kuhnian paradigm shift in that the two approaches are sort of incommensurable with one another and that they really don't have anything to do with one another? I I I think what what really needs to be done is that mm. We need to build on the biomedical field that we have and and sort of move that along in terms of there's a, a movement towards systems medicine mm. as, as part of the precision medicine uh, movement. And that what we need to incorporate in that is this humanity, this this idea that we are training physicians not only to be, you know, caring, but 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 also competent in terms of uh, their their skill sets, um, and mm. so I think for for the future, I I really hope that we continue with the technological end of it, but really also making that available not just to the rich and 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 to a few, mm. but making that accessible. Uh, to pretty much everyone, but that re that's really a, a larger sociological question, and I, I, I just don't know. I mean, you know, take take a look at you know, I grew up in a small midwestern town that used to yeah. have industry there, and it is all gone. I mean, right? It is, and you know, there's another documentary on <laughs> how this one midwestern town how. Uh, foreign investors came in and opened up a uh, 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 a factory, but they were paying a minimum wage, and there was no uh, you know no ability to unionize. And if you ever mm. want to really understand the importance of the unions, um, uh, adversary in the house by um, oh, what's his name um, Irving. Irving Stone, um, it's it's about Eugene Debs, 
one of the first ones to actually uh, unionize the uh, uh, the railroad workers. I mean, the conditions that these people worked under were incredible, and I think as yeah. as a society we've we're, we just find ourselves being polarized more and more and more, and it, it seems that classism mm. has has really become our our major ism uh, at mm. at this stage of the game, and yeah, it 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 just it doesn't it you know it cares only about wealth. Yeah, I mean that's 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 what it's what what it's based upon. But certainly one of the the chief values uh, that it's that it's based upon. And so, uh, it's the problem is so large, so much larger than just medicine. What would be the yeah. ideal physician to get at that? I, I think we've got to make some major changes uh, in terms yeah. of our social structure itself. And that's, that's why I like your podcast and why I liked listening to it. You, <laughs> you really take on um, a number of facets that sort of are important in terms of where we are today and sort of what we need to be thinking about in order to mm. really chart uh, a better future. Um, Thank you. I really appreciate that. Um, I, I mean, that's, been my goal so it's it's very uh gratifying but more importantly helps me make sure you know i i don't get a lot of feedback right now like i don't it's not i'm not a huge podcast by any means and so to hear that is is very gratifying thank you um forgive me for looking to the side i was listening um but i was looking up your books because you're talking about systems biology i know that's one of your books if someone wanted to learn more about this what is the best way or what book would you recommend of yours for them? Um, in, in terms of, of systems biology, I just go on and Google. I mean, there are a lot of good authors yeah. Um, yeah. out there. Uh, if, and, and, and in terms of uh, systems medicine, there's, there's an Institute of, of systems biology, Leroy Hood, uh, who was one of the, um, major people involved in the uh, uh, human genome project. Uh, he mm. has a, an institute out uh, in Seattle, Washington, and he has this mm. whole systems uh, medicine thing. So I'd go on and Google his thing. He's got, um, um, he's, he's just got a very nice website that, that would <laughs> introduce you to all this stuff. And he's got a newsletter that he can send you. I, I subscribe to it. It's, it's kind of cool. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, we'll make sure to link to that uh, uh, in the description. Um, Dr. Markham, it's been such a pleasure having you on. Well, thank um, you. I just wanted to say thank you. Yeah. Um, and I'd like to thank the uh, thank our listeners for joining us. Um, if you enjoyed the depth of conversation or learned something, please like, share, and subscribe so someone else can too. Uh, so someone else can hear Dr. Markham. And uh, I, I think the first important step is assessing the problem, right? right. And uh, I want to thank you for, for providing that for Great. us today. Well, it's been my pleasure. I just, this is... This is just a lot of fun. You're really, yeah. you're really a great person to communicate with. Just, just to have a talk. Your questions were great. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs>